I'm delighted to be here tonight in the cozy confines of Artifact Coffee to continue our Origin Speaker series. I'm Spike Jurdy, the owner of Woodbury Kitchen here in Baltimore. This gathering is intended to advance the conversation about food, its origins, and what is happening around our food system in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. We started our first restaurant, Woodbury Kitchen, with a commitment to local sourcing and now work closely with more than 60 different farmers and producers throughout the region. We supply our four restaurants and our canning and butchery operations with meat, eggs, grains, fish and shellfish, cooking oil, cheeses and produce, literally everything we need to feed our guests. The hope is that this series will shine a light on the work that this community is doing in our area. The conversation is held monthly at Artifact, our coffee shop, in the heart of the Woodbury neighborhood in Baltimore. Welcome. Good evening, everybody, and, and welcome to Origins. Um, great to see so many of you again that have been here in the past, and I see a lot of new faces out there, so thanks for coming. I'm Dana Slater. I'm the producer of Origins, and tonight actually marks the third anniversary of our series, wow. which is great. Um, so we are just delighted to welcome Michael Twitty here tonight from D.C. Thanks for making the trek Thank up. You. Appreciate it. So let me give a little bit of an introduction about Michael. Um, Michael is a noted and culinary, culture, culinary and cultural historian and the creator of Afro Culinaria, the first blog devoted to African-American historic foodways and their legacies. He has been honored by firstwefeast.com as one of the 20 greatest food bloggers of all time and named one of the 50 people who are changing the South by Southern Living Magazine and one of the five, help me here, chef-tivists to watch (laughs) by takepart.com. Michael's work has appeared in Ebony, The Guardian, and on NPR. He's also a Smith Fellow with the Southern Foodways Alliance, a TED Fellow, and speaker, and the first revolutionary in residence at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. Right? Wow. Great. His recently published book, which I'm just going to hold up here, is called The Cooking Gene, A Journey Through African-American Culinary History in the Old South, um, will be available for sale after the talk and maybe kind of after we get settled for dinner. Unfortunately, the UPS package did not make it to my house in time. So um, if you'd like a copy of the book, they'll be for sale for $25. Michael will autograph a book plate for you. I will deliver them to Artifact tomorrow. (laughs) And you can pick them up here, let's say Monday, to be safe. Okay. Um, So I just wanted to say that um, For those of you that haven't been to Origins, tonight's uh, proceedings are recorded and um, the conversation is then edited and uploaded to uh, Heritage Public Radio in Brooklyn, New York. So when we talk together for the Q&A portion um, and I come around with the mic, please just raise your hand and I'll come around with the mic. Um, Don't shout out over each other because it it won't give us a good clean recording. So so thank you for that. just wanted to say, our next Origins, uh, if you wanted to note this, because um, we did have a waiting list tonight, which is great. Um, so if you want a ticket, buy it early. <laughs> it's going to be on February 15th, and it'll be on natural sweeteners. Um, we have a, a honey company, a sorghum farmer from Virginia coming, and I'm looking hard for a maple syrup producer. I can help you. Okay, great. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right. 
Uh, quick shout out to the Origins team um, that helps put this, put this on every month. Spike, thank you very much. Hannah, thanks as always for all your help. Lauren, is she Jones now or Paven? Paven Jones. Paven Jones. Lauren Paven Jones. <laughs> all right. That's a ring too. Lauren Paven Jones and her team here at Artifact. I think we have Chef Lou tonight for the first time in the kitchen. So Spike will tell us later a little bit about what we're going to eat. And we have Lauren, who is doing our recording tonight. Mary Romeo. Where's Mary? Over there. Does our Facebook page. Uh, Sean O'Shea does our flowers. Who am I forgetting? I think that's everybody. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Spike. Thank you. It's so awesome to have Michael here. This is a conversation that we're going to have tonight that has been going on. We just discovered between us since... 2011. Right. And before we get into Michael's uh, brilliant new book, The Cooking Gene, um, which documents his his trip on the Southern Discomfort Tour, I wanted to go back uh, to this amazing pamphlet that he he, uh, gifted me with on 10-19-11 and um, really was an incredibly important part of my kind of culinary journey and, and helping me understand, as, as a couple other writers have, what I was actually trying to do at Woodbury mm. Kitchen. And it's, a, it's been an amazing experience for me as a chef uh, to go down this road and, and, and be working over there um, and then have somebody like Michael come along and in, in this particular work, Fighting Old Nep, um, kind of helped me understand what I was trying to do and a little bit, bit about who I was. And Michael's ability to, to kind of um, help uh, well, to kind of find his own identity, I think, through food and the, and, and the history of food and the history of, 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 of the food his, his ancestors uh, brought and, and, and spread throughout this country is amazing to me. Um, it's something we were just kind of talking about, we'll probably get into in, in a little bit. But I want to say that this, this little pamphlet really, you know, I think in, in meaningful ways changed the trajectory of, uh, of Woodbury Kitchen. And I'll just, I'm not going to spend too much time thinking about this, but... I, I was obsessed with trough mush since I read this, uh, this pamphlet, and it's what we, uh, Lou and I kind of decided we would do trough mush and only trough mush, because I've been talking about it with Michael for years. And uh, <laughs> uh, so we had trough mush, this, this kind of, uh, I guess, I don't want to call it iconic, but a, a, an important dish, I guess yeah. you could say. Can you talk a little bit about trough mush? Before <clears throat> we, uh... That's why the book is called Fighting Old Nep. Um, what I found, you know, about the time that I wrote, you know, a book that I published on my printer, laser printer. Why? Because I didn't want to beg nobody to tell my own story. You know, you gotta, before, the, before the net, before, you know, all these things people kind of like smirk at, there was no democracy with passing on ideas. You had, to, you had to, you know, jump through these academic hoops and grant hoops and beg somebody for the money and the time and the ability. And I said, I have a printer. I have ideas. I have a voice. I'm going to sell this thing for 10 bucks a pop. I'm going to do it. And I did it my way. And I said, I'm going to start something. And it just happened to end up in your hands, in Denzel's hands, in the Maryland Humanities Council's hands. And the problem was is that there, you know, we, we, we're in a state where the legacy of slavery is sort of like um, put on the way back burner, but yet everybody knows about Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and Benjamin Banneker and whatnot. So the time this was happening, the Reginald Lewis was a baby. 
you know. Um, so just just having those sort of like markers of our own unique history in this state as African Americans of Marylanders, period, and how we relate to the institution of slavery. Um, Nep was the dog mm -hmm. on the plantation that Frederick Douglass grew up on, and he grew up on like a subset of what was the Lloyd Plantation. So he was sort of like in a lesser, a, a lower holding on this bigger, you know, plantation. And Nep guarded the kitchen. His job was to literally scare the children and other black people out of, and he said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to make it in this life. No dog, no whip, no nothing's going to get in my way from surviving. And so um, he talked about this, this, this uh, trough that enslaved people, you know, were, his children were bid to eat from. You know, to, and, uh, and the Lloyd Plantation was gargantuan. Right, one of the biggest. Uh, one of the biggest mm -hmm. in the South. And one of the, he had other enslaved uh, populations in other states as well. Mm -hmm. But one of the things about it was is that on these larger plantations, there, you know, there was the, the, bare, the bare minimum babysitting. And so what happened is all these children would be running around naked, half naked, um, barefoot. Um, the only thing they had to pick up the mush with was their hands, the shingle from the roof, or oyster shells, which were used in everything. Uh -huh. For architecture, to, to make the paths, mm -hmm. and gardens, everything. So that's what they had. They had trough much, which they were eating with this oyster shell, and it was whatever was left over. The cornmeal, stale bread, um, buttermilk, mm -hmm. you know, kind of like boiled up into some kind of like uh, unfortunate kind of gross porridge, but you didn't have nothing else to eat. Right. And so he talked about how they were called like so many little pigs. Uh, that was his description. But he said, you know, I didn't want to just eat that. I was willing to risk getting bitten by a dog rather than starve. He knew that, that was not only substandard food, but you know something, I got to tell you, now this is not the food he gave you. I'm going to just, you know, I'm not scared, <laughs> trying to scare you. But, you know, you got to realize that the number one um, medicine among enslaved people were vermifuges. You know Latin? Vermis, worm. Because they were eating with their bare hands, the hands were unclean, they were walking around in animal feces all the time, which gives you worms to your feet. And so they were just, you know, a bunch of kids transmitting to each other these various parasites. And he was like, uh-uh. He didn't know that, that's our science talking. But he's like, uh, this is this there's something wrong with this. And so he said he was willing to fight that dog to survive. That's where I wanted to base my culinary history. I didn't want to base it, and I wanted to, and the thing that got me was you said to me, you picked up on this. You know, everybody else be like, oh, so how do I make that for a party? Spike was like, Spike was like, the one line that got to me was add your tears which I kept in the book. I kept the recipe for that, this book and this book. Add your tears. Because, and it, you know, our food stories aren't just about what's tasty and what's good and what's trendy and what's cute and what's awesome. Our food story is a different food story. It's about survival, persistence, resistance, and nation. It ain't just about what looks good, tastes good, etc. It, you know, it's about where we come from. Yeah. Wow. 
And that's, I mean, one of the things you're talking about is going back to Africa now, something that's, that you weren't able to do before the cream right. gene came out. But now you're kind of, kind of bringing it back to where it started. A lot, you know, this was the first, reading this was the first time I was able to connect a lot of the traditions of Maryland back to Senegambian populations in Africa, the, the, the ingredients, the right. techniques. Um, there was something, uh, there was something called the fish pepper that was talked about in here. Um, that's been hugely, obviously hugely. Which, by the way, was, was called, when I first encountered that pepper, it was called the Thai fish pepper. At a, at a local uh, living history museum in Virginia, and they sold it from their uh, greenhouse and called it a Thai fish pepper. And I had, to, I had to have it, so I brought it home, and I literally looked at the pepper, you know, the way you look at, you know, um, a beautiful person. And I went, I literally went, you don't look tired of me. <laughs> you, look, you, look like a, you look like a sister, you look like a brother. You know, and, uh, you know, I was able to, the miracle of the internet, I was able to introduce myself and actually meet people like William Boys Weaver, mm -hmm. who, of course, you know, you know, his grandfather got seed from Horace Pippin, that great African-American painter. And there's this narrative that goes with it. But he said there's far more to it. And so there was this generation of people like um, Wesley Green at Williamsburg, Peter Hatch at uh, Monticello, who were not just, you know, they all got their jobs on, on, on the fly, right? So they weren't too, they weren't, they weren't very profit, they weren't professorial about it. It wasn't some ivory tower they were guarding. They made, they made their shit up too. So they were able, they were, they were very generous with me and said, we've done our work, but honestly, we don't know very much about your story. So it's your job. To re we'll tell you what we know, we'll tell you where to look and what to read, but it's your job to connect this to the larger narrative of African, African-American, African-Caribbean people. And that's how the, the fish pepper came up. Thank you for helping us not only you did, you, so you're the one of the few examples of culinary justice. See, people get pissed off at me because culinary, culinary injustice is about appropriation, the opposite of which is acknowledgement, um, support of the community from which it comes, and creating greater awareness. So you're one of the, the models that we have in this country of culinary justice. Because they think I don't like white guys. They think it's, oh, you don't like white men, white, successful white men. No. I just like successful white men to tell the damn truth. <laughs> well, we're trying, brother. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll see in yeah, 2020. Okay, all right. <laughs> so what Michael was, what, what I became aware of from Fighting Old Nap was um, the fact that Maryland cuisine, and I'd love for you to kind of see if I got this right, right. Is, was the first fully creolized cuisine in North America, in Absolutely. that it, it brought together the cooking and the traditions and the ingredients of, of enslaved Africans, of Native Americans, and of like Anglo-Europeans. Yes. And so I, all of a sudden I saw what I was cooking and you know what I was drawing from in an entirely different way. Absolutely, and it's also the Caribbean and also Southeast Asia. People don't, re people don't realize, people are coming all the way from Java and Bali uh, Madagascar, which, you know, that's in my blood. Um, you know, you know Madagascar is at the other end of this diaspora of Indonesians and Southeast Asian culture, which mixes with African culture. Mm -hmm. That comes here. Uh -huh. 
Um, there are people from the Middle East here. It's, it's, it's very interesting to me how, you know, we talk about the presence of Latinx people in the, in the American Revolution and Islamic people in the form of enslaved people and, and North Africans coming to this country. And we have this current political, we'll talk about that later, but this current political discussion about who belongs in America and who doesn't. I'm like, baby, they already done been here. You better do your little ancestry test. You better do your 23 I mean, you're going to find some stuff. And you're going to find you gonna find out they already done been here. I don't know any greater record of that than your own bloodline. So let's get that straight. But this is, a, but you know, Annapolis, you know, we, you know, we talk about Williamsburg, which, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, have a you know big part of my heart in life, but Annapolis was the world class, rich people city. Williamsburg was actually kind of like the you know, the backwater, so, you know, down there on the yeah. down there. Yeah. You know, the bigger, richer colony. Mm -hmm. the, the Williamsburg that you see is not the Williamsburg that was there. It was mostly shacks and holes in the ground, and then these little cute houses were like the the one of the one percent of the one percent, right? But Annapolis was this world class port with all these things and people and stuff coming in. Um, from a very early time, you gotta remember, the, in the first enslaved Africans that arrive in Virginia and Maryland are cosmopolitan. They are Atlantic Creoles. They are Portuguese, pigeon-speaking Catholic Africans who are well aware of the Western world. You know, their, grand, their grandfathers went to the Vatican to represent their people in Rome. The, hmm, no. You know how I know this? Because of Baltimore. Walter's Art Gallery. Uh -huh. A beautiful exhibit on, you know, Africans in Renaissance Europe. Yes. That's right. And so they're there. They're there. And they're not, they're not you know, it's not the Kunta Kinte story yet. You know, that does happen. Mm -hmm. But you got to remember, people don't understand that this thing happens in waves, much like European immigration happens in waves. Uh -huh. And there's a reason why certain foods, certain people, and certain ways of thinking about food happen at certain times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what, getting back to Africa, like you going back to Africa, what is that confirming, like in the work that you've done up till now, and you getting to travel back to Nigeria or? Yeah, so June of this past year, I went to Senegal. And it, the whole point of going to the continent was originally supposed to be the, the you know, the denouement of this book. But I could not convince anyone, trust me, I tried, to sort of like send my black ass back. <laughs> uh, you know, FedEx me back to Africa, please. Trump's coming. Um, and no one would do it. And I was like, please, come on now. And, and, and... And it was because it was, I, I tell people, this is a very important story for millions of people of color in, people of African descent in, the, in this, the, the Americas. This is the dream. It's part of the dream. Another part of the dream is passing on to our children a worthwhile future. But I finally got to go to Senegal as the book was being published. And okay, I don't care, I'm gonna go to Senegal. And I got to tell you, the first, Senegal was, Senegal and Gambia represent 60% of the enslaved Africans that are brought to Maryland. And I went to Nigeria in November. Nigeria represents 50% of all the Africans brought to Virginia and about 20%, not 20%, I'm sorry, about 10% brought to Maryland. Okay? So to put this in perspective, 
Virginia was called the mother of presidents. It would be called the mother of the enslaved. Because from its inception as a slaveholding colony to its to emancipation, it was the, the state with the largest population of African descent. There's almost no African American who has ancestry going back to that time period that doesn't have at least one ancestor that wasn't born in one of two places, Virginia or South Carolina. And a good number also born in Maryland and Georgia. North Carolina did not have a lot of ports. Those folks are coming either in from Norfolk or they're coming up from Charleston, okay? With a few coming in from Edenton, Wilmington, but mostly because it was the graveyard of the Atlantic, right? No use sending precious cargo if it's going to get wrecked. The bottom line is almost everybody can trace their ancestry back to an Igbo woman living in eastern Nigeria. They were the most fertile. Why were they the most fertile? Because the guinea yam, it all goes back to food. The guinea yam um, works with um, the biology of the women in that region to produce the highest number of twins in the world. So much so that among the Yoruba people, twins are a deity, ebeji, meaning double, double wealth of a blessing, but among the Igbo they were osu, which means it's a taboo. Um, in Niger Eastern Nigeria is the most populated area of, of Africa to this day. I have never seen that many people in a rural area before. Mm -hmm. Thousands of children in the village that I was in. Thousands. So, you, so if you get your mind going like an like a 18th century slaveholder going, okay, hold up. So these, these men from Senegal are really tall and strong. And these women from Nigeria are extremely fertile, have all these twins. All I need is a couple of niggas with me, and I'll make me a plantation full. I don't have to buy any new ones. Because America likes to brag that we ain't like Brazil. Brazil brought in millions of people. But Brazil, the difference was, again, food. In Maryland, you eat in hominy, mm -hmm. Native American, right? Mm -hmm. Which means that corn is being processed with lye. Yes. And it, next to malai, becomes a complete food yes. when eaten with other stuff like beans, right. etc. Versus the Caribbean and Brazil, we're eating manioc cassava, which if you just don't eat it on its own, will fill you up and will make you malnourished. So America, so Chesapeake region became the only part of the New World where Africans were brought to where they were naturally reproducing. And therefore, they could stop the import of enslaved Africans right about the time of the revolution. But that was going to happen anyway because by 1750, the native-born population exceeds those brought in from the continent, whereas in South Carolina, where the rice plantations were, and malaria, and yellow fever, and smallpox, and snake bites, and gators, and just overall pestilence and sickness, they continually bring in Africans. And remember, that was a whole constitutional argument, right? That was the whole thing. Compromises. Virginia and Maryland go, oh, no, we got plenty of black people to sell you. South Carolina said, no, no, we want people who can grow rice, who are from the tropics, who have been living. We don't want your used to snow having black folks growing up on corn. No, we want rice-growing Africans. I'm like, no, 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 we got, no, it's like back, our back and forth until the slave trade was extended until 1808. And then when Whitney um, appropriates the cotton gin technology from enslaved Africans, let's get it straight, I'm glad he died poor. Um, I'm one of them kind of black folks. Uh-uh, I ain't got no love for them. Because um, Whitney broke up our families. 
You know, that, that invention destroyed the black family. It said that a black man and woman who picks up a book is worthy of the death penalty. How the hell is that democracy in the American dream? If you can't have, you don't have a right to your children's welfare, you can't protect your woman, you can't read a book. That's what happens. And so those folks get sold from here to there. But that's how it works. Now, going back to the continent, for me, when I first do, do, doing all this research, I was at the Library of African Art, fantastic place, African Art Museum in, in DC, and also I had a lifetime growing up around continental Africans who are African immigrants in this country. Um, and I would just, everything I could read, everything I could see, but you know, people weren't really documenting art, agriculture and food. They weren't into that. West African food took, you know, a long time to even get to like little mom and pop places, even in DC. Mm -hmm. So I had to really dig hard. Uh -huh. But when I did, I started, you know, kind of intuiting, okay, wait a minute, leafy greens, rice, uh, things made into porridge like corn, that I got the building blocks of what is an African diaspora cuisine. Yes. Finally getting to go to Senegal, and of course the first thing I eat is rice. The last thing I ate was rice. And the middle was rice. You know? And you know, you tell people, oh yeah, this is like home, and they look at you really funny, like, that can't possibly be true. They don't know our story. In the same way African Americans do not know the full legacy of colonialism. It's a, you know, so we this education process goes through. But I was just telling Spike in brief that it's it, it's it's everything from the the fish at the market, Kermel Market in Dakar, blue crab, oysters, clams, bonga shad, herring, perch, catfish. West Africans love some catfish, and it's just like, wait a minute, where have I seen this before? Versus going to England, going to the UK three times, England, Scotland, Ireland, and you go to the fish market, and it's not though, it's turbo. Brill and cod. That's it. Fresh and preserved. That's not the same dynamic. It's not the same taste palette. There's no sauce piment. There's no hot sauce everywhere in England. Well, now there is, because, you know, yeah. <laughs> colonialization and immigration. But, I mean, for real, for real, you don't eat those blue crabs in Senegal without that hot, peppery stuff. The same way we, we do, you know, base seasoning. It's on everything. You know, right? And so these, these, these you know, they, they, were, they were frying, the, the, the staff for the hotel was frying fish for their, for their supper as a group. I'm like, oh, hell. Fried fish and hot sauce, the smell of fried. I'm like, okay, where am I? I'm Friday night in any black household in America. You know? They had, they invite us to eat supakanja with them, which is okra stew on top of rice. It just keeps on going and going and going. And I know this sounds, I know it sounds like obvious, but I gotta tell you something. It's the same thing that when you go to Senegal and you go to Nigeria and you see people who look like people you always grew up with, and, know, and you know this is gonna happen to you, but when it does, it takes your breath away like it's like a deja vu thing. It's like, you look at somebody and go, they look at you, why are you staring at me? Because you look like this brother I grew up with. You look like this cousin I had. You look like my grandfather. You look like so-and-so. When you pull up the picture, and it's fascinating because now we have smartphones, right? We can just do that anytime. And they look at it and they, they, their jaws drop open and go, wow. So to leave that point, there was a young lady named Fanta. 
and um, she was at the hotel, first hotel in Dakar, and she was the staff was so friendly and they were really great. They're all younger people and they were fascinated with me cooking all this stuff because you know that's not no that ain't no man's job in Senegal. Mm-hmm. And they just she said to me, you know, Michael, you, I said we are your new family, but you are our old family. And that's how I knew I had come back home. Wow. So I want to try to keep steering the conversation back to food, but it seems, and in this region and the contributions of enslaved Africans, but it seems like we have to go through something that was grown here that isn't a food, right. which is tobacco. Right. Because its mark is still on our land, and I think it's still on our people. Every right? road, every person, um, our own genealogical history is shaped by tobacco. Here's the bottom line. Um, every road is a tobacco road because that's where the hogsheads were. These are a thousand plus pound barrels that crushed everything in their way. And so those things going down old paths made the, made the pikes and the rows that we rely on to get back and forth. That's where it started. Not to mention the fact that tobacco was his first like, it was like a venture capital crop, right? right? If, you just, if you just grow it in the street, and sell it. It becomes cash, right? Right. Um, of course, I talked about how, like, in Senegal, they were already growing tobacco in 1607 right. before John Rolfe had even heard of it. Right. It was, like, this massively important crop. And what the thing about colonialism is it underdevelops the continent. So the bottom line is they were producing their own pots, their own metalwork, their own tobacco, just fine, their own cloth. And when... The Chesapeake becomes this tobacco-growing region, just like people looking to the rice-growing parts of Africa for rice labor. Right. Planters in Chesapeake are looking for Africans who are good with tobacco. You so, make the point, sorry to interrupt, but you make the point yeah. that it was, I, I think a lot of us associate slavery with labor, but you make a really cool point to me, which is, this is it's labor and knowledge, labor and expertise right. that really, you know. We showed up empty-handed, not empty-headed. That's the most important part. And so what they were doing is they're taking the best men and the best women who knew how to grow this crop, ex- extracting them from the continent to grow tobacco that was then sent back to the continent to buy other Africans. So in other words, you're, you're doing two things. You're killing two birds with one stone. You are destroying the, the economy of West Africa. And you're also taking its best people, the youngest, the strongest and you're creating, you're creating new social dynamics that were never there before. And then, of course, with tobacco, there's a food process. Every one of these cash crops is a food thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like in Louisiana, they became like perfect at making like um, um, confection. That was a big because of the French thing, the African thing. Put those together, sugar cane. Sugar thing. That's yeah. all. It's all over the place, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Praline and pecan pie and blah blah blah, right? right. Uh, my favorite thing is crackling with cane syrup on it. I mean, people talk about like bacon, bacon can like they invented something. No, no, no. And in South Carolina, the rice, the rice kitchen. So in in Maryland and Virginia it was very interesting because you had a little bit of Africans from all over the continent, but you also had a crop that was edible. So how does that relate to food? Yes. Three simple ways: corn, wheat, and tobacco went hand in hand. As a, as, a, as a triad of crops. You basically shifted cultivation one to the other until you wore out the land and had to move on. 
And so that means the if you if, the, if you have to move on, that means the people have to move on too. So that essentially created this vast arc of upper southern foodways. Now, of course, the further inland you go, the more you lose the bay stuff, right? So you no longer can have the estuary and all of its juicy, wonderful inhabitants, right? But so you shift mentality. So somebody who was born in Missouri is eating turkey and clam sauce. Where do clams come from? The Missouri and Mississippi rivers. Where'd the granddaddy eat? Turkey and oysters. They just shifted those things. The country ham, the fried chicken, the cornbreads, the hoe cake, the mush, the hominy, all that stuff went from terrapin to snapping turtle. They just adjusted. And so the upper south is this arc going from Virginia and North, upper North Carolina, Maryland, and Delaware across to Kentucky, Tennessee, the lower, the lower Midwest, Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, beneath uh, Highway 70 is basically the south. Y'all know that. Uh, that's where pants come from, ain't it? And then um, you go across to Arkansas and Texas, it's the same food. Why? Because it's the same people. Essentially, you're running out of room for tobacco, picking up, taking up steaks, keep moving. Pick up steaks, keep moving. Pick up steaks, keep moving for 200 years. So that diet stays the same, but also when you're in the field working tobacco, especially in the colonial and antebellum period, all the weeds that infest the field that are com competition for the tobacco are virtually edible and medicinal. Mm -hmm. So pokeweed, lamb's quarter, purslane, all that stuff, you're picking that up, you're taking that pork, which is the, the main protein, not fresh, salted, smoked, and you're that's, that's your dinner with cornbread. And so there's a seasonal reality also that, you know, one of the things I write about in the book is how people would actually take the tobacco steaks that were broken, our people, not just any people, because we were smart people. We're still a smart people. And we would take those tobacco steaks and make them into traps for the fish and for a game. You take the tobacco hornworm off, they would send the turkeys, the guinea fowl to the field to eat them off. Uh -huh. It's another part of the diet issue, right? That would su half supply the needs of the poultry. So then you take the tobacco hornworm off, and they use that for bait to catch the, you know, big gar or whatever in, you know, in the creek or the, or the estuary. Uh -huh. um, the pawpaw trees and persimmon trees, which, you know, the early chroniclers said things like this. This is food only used by Indians and Negroes. That phrase comes up so much, and it's in different books, different time periods. So the idea is that if you were native or you were African, you were utilizing foods that everyday European settlers would not touch, unless, of course, they had been assimilated into the food culture of Africans and natives. So all those things fit in with this whole tobacco culture, foodways area. And of course, it's at its most intense when it is in the Eastern Shore, when it is on the Chesapeake Bay, when it's in the tributaries. Why? Because uh, all the pieces are there, and that it's, it's most diverse. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we both know that, you know, not every, you can't get every fish every time of the year. Mm -hmm. There's, what, 40, 50 different edible species, and there's a cycle. And that cycle is also uh, keyed into the cycle of the crops. You know, tobacco is, a, tobacco is January, you hit the bed, down to September when you cut it, back to October when you start to strip it, to November when you pack it. 
The 13 month crop. 13 month crop. You never, you never finish. And then auctioneering takes place in December to January, and then we're back on the same cycle. The fishing year, the Chesapeake is rich. You know, you have to know those four seasons. Um, actually, I think the native, I think the indigenous people just be got it right. It's not four; it's six. Right now, we're in Kohonks, which I think is my my favorite, right? Because the easiest to pronounce. The rest of them are bear, but but it's autom- it's automatopoeia. It's rich poetry. You know what it is? Kohonks. It's the sound of the Canada geese. Oh wow! Uh, Flying. It's the winter time. Uh-huh. It's the it's the light winter. There's light winter and there's hard winter. And then there's light spring and there's, there's warmer spring. And then the rest of the seasons are as usual. You know. And so it, it really does put in perspective you know, why people ate certain ways when they did. And of course, enslaved Africans are bringing in all kind of good stuff. They're bringing Afro-Caribbean stuff. Mm-hmm. And when I say Afro-Caribbean, I do not mean uh, that assimilated or that acculturated. What I'm really talking about is they were able to bring things directly from the continent to the plantations of the, Ches- of the Caribbean. Sugar, right? And they, and they were bounced off to the North American mainland. So, for example, you're, if you're in Africa, you're already eating sweet potato. But sweet potato is indigenous to the Caribbean and also mainland Latin America. They call them Spanish potatoes in the colonial period for a reason because they were coming from Cuba and Puerto Rico. Well, these places are not places of, of um, a, lot of a, a lot of cultural mixing to the degree that we think. Because remember, native people died off massively, 90%. And then Africans who were brought in, they're essentially recreating Africa on these tropical islands. So you had um, peppers and okra and sweet potatoes and peanuts. And we had rice here in the region, too. Mm-hmm. They were growing rice in Maryland, rice in Virginia. Every single time they t- talk about rice, you know who they, you know who they bring up? We're the, we're the power behind that. So all those things that we th- we've, and bomber ground nuts, which you can, no longer, you can no longer find in North America, were grown everywhere. That's the original ground nut, not the peanut, the original ground nut. Bomber ground nut. So it's... Um, it, when they say ground on West Africa, they say peanut now, but also it really does mean that it's a kind of a legume. It looks just like a peanut. It has a peg goes in the ground, but it's more like, it looks like a black-eyed pea that grows in the ground, but it's rather round, and it, you eat it, it's, it's kind of, it's mushy, and they boil them too. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you know, bowl peanuts, bowl groundnuts. Mm-hmm. All that stuff stayed the same. Every, all of it. Um, in fact, one thing I learned about Africa... Excuse me. The one thing I learned about America the most when I was in Africa was how African white people are. White Southerners are the most African, Africanized white people in the world. They don't know it. And that's why they're mad. <laughs> because their food, the food, the gestures, the, 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 the talking, I was like, wait a minute. Now, y'all, y'all, y'all skip on back to your little uh, kilts and later hose in Europe. You ain't going to fit in. But if you came to Nigeria, you'd be, okay. you'd be all right. <laughs> That's your people. Let's talk about, I, I want to get to this amazing book, uh, The Southern Discomfort Tour, that's documented therein. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm always like so glad to be here at Artifact, because I, I have this feeling like if these walls could talk, they'd have a lot to say. And it, 
I get the feeling that the walls that you visit have a lot to say to you. Yeah. And um, but this book, you, you were talking about this when we were, you know, after we had first met, that you were going to embark on this tour, and I, I get. I mean, it was fun. I didn't really get what you were talking I didn't know what you were after. And now, and <laughs> but he gave I'm, me money, which was awesome. <laughs> God bless you. But now that I read it, you know, now I'm obviously understanding it more. But I, I, I want to maybe talk a little bit about, and it's in the book, but talk a little bit about sure. how you got to, to, to this decision to, to, to do this. First was I was starting to forget, which in really in human terms isn't forgetting at all. It's just that weeds grow over our memories. Uh, that's a better way to think about it. It's also better for us because we need to retrieve. We, we don't forget. You don't forget anything. It just gets lost in this jungle of the mind. And I know that for people in the room who are, who are of a certain age, it sounds very funny. But remember, I come from a community where 60 and 70 are old age for the, for the wrong reasons. Diet, chronic illness, blah, blah, blah. So you can't run back to people and ask them questions like, where do I come from? Because you ain't got that. So you become, so the more you get to 35 and 40, particularly as a black male living in the D.C. Baltimore area, I hate to say that, but I just lost two friends in the past month or so from various things. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, I'm an old man in a way I shouldn't be. And so I started to forget and the other part of it was, I was watching Bourdain and everybody else go across the planet, and every time they went to some place like Sardinia, or, you know, um, the Yellow River in China, and everybody just kind of like, oh yeah, this is so ancient, we've always done this, and it looks so time-honored, and so, you know, uh, respectable. It's a heritage. Mm -hmm. But when you talk about food in our community, oftentimes it's boiled down to just this amorphous title of soul food which I don't hate on, because I, you know, I'm thankful that we're the only cuisine in the world that names itself after something transcendental. <laughs> that's fierce as hell, because that's immortal. The soul is immortal. The soul is, in, is intangible, but you know it's there. So that's love. But the question is also, I think with, with our foodways, I think people forget about the regionalism. They're not really patient about learning about the origins of it. Right. You know, um, for them, it's like, yeah, 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 y'all got in a boat. Yeah, 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 y'all had to make do with some leftovers. Yeah, 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 it tastes pretty good. All, you know, okra, rice, black eyed peas, and watermelon, the Negro so nice. And that's the end. Of, that's, that's it. Every single book had that exact description in it. I'm making light, but it, making light of it, but it's really the same talk. You know, and the African slaves contributed. First of all, contributed what? Oh, hello, white folks. Here, we're going to give you some okra, some rice, some black eyed peas, some watermelon, and it's going to be a nice... Thank you. And meanwhile, would you contribute to me? What? Get out of here. Nah, forget that little, the little speech you got in kindergarten about the, about the Indians and the pilgrims. Nonsense. It's not a contribution. It's, it's a coercion. Get it straight. So, for me... It's about writing that all, what John Michael Vlach, um, one of our um, dear scholars, um, he said that the history of African-American material culture has the keys to an alternative history. Mm -hmm. So for me, the alternative history is how did that food become 
um, a weapon, have that food become, so? how is it so casual that you can take somebody who says, my culture is best culture, and then over, almost overnight convince them, oh, no, 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 you need some black eyed peas in your life. Oh, no, 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 you're going you're gonna to eat this. You're going to eat spicy food. What? I'm British. I don't care. Eat it. How did they do that? How did, first of all, they raised the people's children. Their children grew up essentially alongside black kids when a black woman raised them. A black man teaches them how to hunt and fish and apparently how to play the guitar <laughs> and all the other nonsense. And they, you know, and they grew up, you know, Creolized. They grew up, you know, so their t palate changes. Mm -hmm. Their whole, you know, it's like people in Jamaica. People forget that white people still in the West Indies. But from the get-go, they were like, uh-uh, you're going to eat like us. You're going to eat cassava, and you're going to eat ackee, and you're going to eat sawfish, and ain't nothing else to it. It's just the way things are going to be done. Same thing in Brazil. What's the national dish of Brazil? Feijoada. Feijoada is what? Collard greens and ribs <laughs> and rice and hot sauce. Like ears and feet. And ears and feet. Hello. Stop the madness. So what does that sound like to you? And beans. Come on now. This, I mean, it's so obvious, isn't it? So we should want to know where this comes from. We should want to know how this plebeian oppressed people took over the world with their food, their music, their sexuality, their religion, their language, everything. So it's this whole journey for me has been about, okay, for us, find the ancestors, mm -hmm. going to archives, going to the plant, looking for the plantations where my ancestors were enslaved, really hard. Um, going to plantations where the, the food and the cultural memories were being created that were still standing. Interviewing elders on the road. Doing my demos. You know, normally I'm in the you know, 18th or 19th century clothing and I'm cooking over an open hearth using wooden and, and you know, iron utensils. This is just me. And also just looking at the natural environment. So I feel very privileged that in those journeys, multiple journeys, um, that year and the ensuing years afterwards, I've been able to do something most people have not been able to do, which is see the entire South on its own terms. Um, from the giant peach in western South Carolina to the rice fields of Arkansas to East Texas and go to different barbecue places, Cajun country, Appalachia, the Chesapeake, low country, um, northern Florida, Gulf Coast, you, know, you name it, Black Belt, I've been to it. Mm -hmm. And also seeing what's driving a lot of our stuff now is straight up poverty and lack. But also, you know, the same point in time, a love. People love their, people love where they come from. It's the large, it's, it's America's largest cultural uh, region. Um, the South. The South. Uh -huh. And it's also you know, exported not only black folks, but white folks as well. You forget that. Um, have you ever wondered, oh, this quick, quick, quick tangent, because you know we love tangents. We black gay Jews. Um, you ever wonder why Southern California has that huge conservative pocket? They were the Okies and the Arkies. Ah. They were all evangelical 
Christians from Texas, Arkansas, and Oklahoma who came west with a dust bowl. Those, those are uh, um, Steinbeck's people. They came across, and they settled in Southern California. And they got good jobs, and they, they took that money plus that power plus that belief system and started something else there. The whole cowboy trail going up into the, up into the mountains. Those are all people whose great-great-grandparents were Southerners. Detroit, Cincinnati, Cleveland, right. the whole white and black populations from the South. So we have to think about these things in terms of migration, in terms of interaction, and how people um, coalesce and split. And that's where the food comes from. That's why food has certain means in certain places and not others, you know? There's a reason why this place, Baltimore, is very unique. I want to talk about that for one second. Yeah. Because Baltimore, I call it <laughs> South by Northeast. <laughs> you know, kind of Austin South by Southwest, which it totally is. Baltimore is totally South by Northeast. Because here you had a larger immigrant population than you had from, from all over than you had from other parts coming to what was formerly the slaveholding South. Mm -hmm. But before, even before that, you had the Germans and the Irish. The Germans didn't really care about slavery. They were German people who had enslaved people, but they were really they were like, nah, this isn't really our thing. They weren't really into that British aristocracy nonsense that made the Southern Cavalier who he was. The Irish didn't want to compete with us. So like, uh-uh, we're not gonna compete with you, so we're gonna kind of ice out that slavery thing. So if you look at the map, Baltimore, go across northern part of what's now Western Virginia, go across to Louisville, German-Irish city, go down to St. Louis, German-Irish city, go down to Austin, German-Irish city. That's the, what you think of as the border of the South is really just where in the 1840s, industrialization and this, these specific ethnic groups came to and said, uh-uh, we ain't doing that no more. Really? They ain't about us. And it changes the food, too. Right. Because Baltimore has this very German, very Irish elements in the cooking. Louisville certainly does. St. Louis certainly does. And then, of course, piggybacking onto those communities were who? German Jews then who yeah. came after yeah. Eastern European Jews. Right. And if, if the Jews are there, the Italians will follow. <laughs> Just like in New York. So if the Italians are there, who's going to follow after them? The Greeks. After them, the Poles. The Ukrainians after the Poles. You feel me? So Patterson Parks make a lot of sense now, doesn't it? You know, this, it, it, it really is a matter of sort of like these layers. And that's where that, that's how can we have this beautiful, wonderful food? Remember, Texas barbecue ain't just black and native and southern. It's also Czech and German. Does it make sense, all the connections? All that stuff? All that stuff. And it was Chesapeake wheat, by the way. Here's the irony of it. People got to realize food has an effect on everything. Tobacco paid the debts to France for the American Revolution. Then, of course, what happens right after? The French have a revolution. Who's growing the wheat in France? Nobody. They're too busy killing each other. <laughs> Where does their bread come from? Wheat grown by enslaved Africans in the Chesapeake. Isn't that ironic, don't you think? Thank you, Alanis. <laughs> it was enslaved people grown grain that kept Europe from starting. Cycles. That's all it is.
Baltimore Harbor. That's right, out of Baltimore, exactly. Right. So you gave me some good news. The book is in its fifth printing. In the first edition, fifth printing, yep. That's incredible. Seems like there's a lot of demand for this message and what you have to share. This this packed room, I think, attests to that. Anyway, you can take, I think, something that... uh, We wanted to talk a little bit about kind of where we are right now as a country. Yeah. And what you're seeing, I think, as, as someone who's contributed this to our, I think, our, our understanding of ourselves and our, our, our histories. Let me check out this real quick. Because there's one, there's one thing in the beginning that I say that kind of leads into that. Because, you know, this was supposed to, it was supposed to be an Obama book. Then it was supposed to be a Hillary book. <laughs> and then it turned to a Trump book. And at first I was screaming mad, then I thought, no, 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 this is cool. Because, you know, if he got snow and she got snow and I got snow, we just all got snow. But if he got something and I got something different, that's all good. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I was like, okay, everything is in God's timing for God's reasons. So this is what I say. Um, and of course, quickly, this book traces my family history along with the food. There's like a braid um, showing all those stuff we just talked about and then some. What is it like when you get down to Louisiana and Alabama? How does that affect the food? Where do, the, where do these recipes come from? Why do people eat certain things? But also, how does it affect the journey of one African-American family? I'm proud of this. And by the way, thank God for, um, for people being fascinated on the internet because it's actually, I got more ancestors that I, got to, I get to write in. It's great. I, I get their names, I get their names back. You know, it's no longer John's mother. It's Sarah Bowen, died in 1850, the age of 90, birthplace Africa. You know how rare it is for an African-American to be able to say, I know who made the middle passage in my family? I mean, okay. So I have these people's names back. I have grandmothers back and grandfathers back. And, and I'm, I'm hoping we go further. But, um, and it's also personal. All my books are gonna be like that, the nonfiction about food, but also about identity. My next book is going to be about my connection to Jewish food and that interplay. And of course, being gay is a part of this book, so it's being Jewish. The next book, being Jewish, is gonna take the, the forefront. The two there, and the last book, the last one of the trilogy is being gay is gonna take the forefront. Although I promise you, it won't be all low carb. <laughs> I mean, I am a bear. You know. We don't do that. We we ain't, we ain't like them other gays. <laughs> but since you asked, um, I dare to believe all Southerners are a family. We are not merely Native European and African. We are Middle Eastern and South Asian and East Asian Latin American now. We are a dysfunctional family, but we are a family. We are unwitting inheritors of a story with many sins that bears the fruit of the possibility of 10 times redemption. One way is through reconnection with the culinary culture of the enslaved, our common ancestors, and restoring their names on the roots of the Southern tree and table, those roots support. The Old South is where I cook, The Old South is a place where food tells me where I am. The Old South is a place where food tells me who I am. The Old South is a place where food tells me where we have been. The Old South is where the story of our food, 
might just tell America where it's going. The old South with soul food in its mouth, and I, who am African American, must know her. I think with that, we will... Um... Questions? I, actually, in hearing that you were going to speak tonight and looking at some of the things you've written, I was intrigued by the idea of the Jewish, the African-American, African, and pork. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and how you reconciled all those things into something. Right. Yeah. So in, so in West Africa, outside of Benin and Togo and parts of Ghana, you don't find a lot of pork. Right. It ain't there. Um, mostly because of the Islamic influence. And also because just climate, ecosystem. It's not easy to raise pigs in a climate where any moment they can be cut down by a bug. The mosquito is the most dangerous animal on earth. You know, you know, it's not rhinoceri. <laughs> um, so that's it. So when I do historic cooking, I stay, I stay true to the, the food. In my home, I don't use pork. Smoked turkey works just fine. It, what, gets, what gets me is the transition from Senegal to here, right? Because you go, okay, so before... It's almost like before bacon, what was there? So I was talking to Pierre Cham last night ago, um, Senegalese chef. He's written two beautiful cookbooks on Senegal. And he says, oh, and, I, and our chabunyebe, ch- um, our rice and black eyed peas, we always put smoked oysters in that. We've all smoked fish in it. We've been doing it for centuries. So the, basically there was this transfer of just, you know, we didn't have as much of that here. But we'll use this ingredient, which has that umami, that smoked flavor, and put it in this. So the Hop and John, all these other recipes, now all of a sudden now get this, the smoked, go from smoked fish and mollusks into the smoked meat, the pork. So it's just, and so that's, so once you realize that's where the emphasis is, it's not the type of protein, it's the flavor, that you can begin to make, you can begin to sort of like recast. You know, for me, kashrut, kosher, is, is actually uh, quite thrilling to cook because it's like it, it makes you more creative. You know, how do you cook something without shellfish or without pork in your household? Well, look, you, you, you start to learn how to make your own stuff. And you also learn how to, you also have a conversation with vegetarians and with vegans that you didn't have before. And, you know, and people who, who eat halal. You know, it's very interesting how, you know, you can really sort of have, create a new food community based on having the same need. So that's that. This is more of a comment than a question. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm a Marylander. My family were tobacco farmers, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a farm since the 1800s. And growing up with my grandmother, um, I mean, we ate the same. I ate as a child the way Spike cooks now. Preserves, applesauce, apple butter, mm-hmm. chow chow. So your, your book speaks to me in a, in a very broad sense. 
because you know we still have our farm. We raise cattle now and steer. Um, my uncles are cowboys, if you will. You know, mm-hmm. so to hear someone else speak the stories I've known all my life is refreshing. Because as a black man in the city, you don't meet other black men who know that story. That That's heritage. right. That's right. And I met, I met through Spike. I met Denzel. I've heard of you the last couple of years. And it's just refreshing to hear the black men speak of traditions and carry them forward. Wow. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. I'm going to tell you why that's, that's cool, too, because I always want to write a book about the African origins of American culture. And John Michael Vlach was like, look, dude, you don't have that many years on this planet. <laughs> you know. And you black. He said, you black. Um, so, yeah. You got to pick something. And use it as the lens. The other part of it was just what you just said, which is we went from being a people that was 90% rural to being 90% urban in the flash of an eye. It's like, and that came with it some serious consequences for mental and spiritual health. We didn't really want to lead a country because all we wanted to be was left alone. We didn't want to be bothered. We, 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 you know, when you go to West Africa and you see, you know, the first thing in the morning is two sounds, three sounds in Senegal. Allahu Akbar. The next thing you know, the, the mortar and pestle. And even if you're in, in an apartment, they still use a damn mortar and pestle. And the floor is like, hey, hey, hey. Wow, wow. Stop. Arrête. They don't care. Mortar pestle. And the third sound is shh, 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 scrag broom. Well, my daddy called a scrag broom in the south that was used to, like, sweep the swept yard. A bunch of branches. Senegal, Nigeria, gone, all of it. You see the same thing. And you go, wait a minute. And then in Senegal, it's a chewing stick. And then you see the same thing. Great, great grandparents, grandparents. The sassafras, a sweet, grum, sweet gum branch, chewing it, cleaning their teeth all day. And you see these, these similarities between, you know, being able to say, I have, I have this tree, it has fruit, I'm going to make something from it. I rely on my own land, my own water, my own soil, my own air for my food. We were organic, sustainable, local, and, and handcrafted before it was cool. Permaculture. And permaculture, too. There you go, all the words in there. Handcrafted, I love that one. As, as opposed to what, right? You don't, don't crap my food with nothing else on you. <laughs> Glad I get away with that one. Um, but that's it. I wanted. To, I did want to write a book in my my past lives of. I'm gonna write a book about that connection alone, that connection to the land, and the memories, and how how our our grandparents, great grandparents, well, really, well, now it's great grandparents, and my my generation's grandparents survived off the land, to give them a road, give people, I wanted to give people of Africa to send a road map back. Not to to oppression, although of course you know that. That's often unfortunately intertwined. Oh, going back there is oppression. Going back to self-reliance is independence. Growing money is growing food. Being able to create, uh, fill the needs of your community through making your own product is power. 
So, 2012, I was in Donaldsonville, Louisiana, Southern Discomfort Tour. And I was at the Black, uh, sorry, the uh, River Road Black History Museum. And I saw a compact for a group of black and Creole farmers. Now, if you're from Louisiana, you know there's a little bit of a difference. We won't go there tonight. And they were like, no, we ain't having no more black folks go hungry or go into debt because they, they're hungry buying food from the plantation store. We're going to have a, a cooperative farm where we own the land and they want food, they can come here and get it. <clears throat> so I was like, wait a minute. That was 1912. I'm looking at this compact 100 years later and we're still trying to figure out how to solve the problem of a food desert. Mm-hmm. Without, and they didn't have no black Twitter. Ain't had no Facebook, and ain't had no this and no that. All they had was will and bravery. Well, how about it? That's all you need to know. I can't say I'm a Marylander. Um, I'm a New Yorker. So I'm on the, on the fringe. <laughs> but uh, thanks for, for pulling the covers off a lot of the myths in a, in a, in a comical way, but in a, in a very serious way. I really appreciate that. Thank um, you. I think um, moving forward, I, I could just feel a musical uh, extension of, you know, just the, the chicory, you know, the, just the way we move just the, mm. way, um, the the sounds of of this whole uh, tr- um, um, journey yeah. uh, that are very well documented. So it's not like you have to create something. It's it's already there. It's already so, there. Yeah, yeah, so. And the first thing the first thing is Thank like you. the sound of stuff being made. Yes. You know, I don't think people realize, like, there is this natural sort of, like, uh, music. And it's, and it's like, um, I don't know how to put it. it the, we, we lost some of that. We lost our mortars and pestles. It was huge. Because as you well know, some of you well know, that mortar and pestle isn't just a sound of work. It ne- it's never silent. The women are always like singing, and the little kids, any little kids around, are always clapping. And it's very interesting how, like, you know how people like be down on, they be down on black music. Always have been from the blues to hip hop. Oh, it's the lyrics, and this is why they're so degenerate and they're so dirty. Shut up. <laughs> you know when the women do the mortar and pestle thing, they'll, the gossip, they talk about stuff, talk about politics. And my, my favorite part is when, like, the mortar and pestle becomes a symbol of them and their husbands. <laughs> and in the field, in the field, the men are doing the exact same thing. And it's like, and it's like, wait a minute, hold up. And these little kids are kind of like, really, they're turning their, their grown folks' ear off and a little kitty, and they're making their own little songs. I saw this in Nigeria, and it, it made me cry. Because it was just like this fluidity with the body. And I thought about like growing up in you know, the burbs in Maryland and how people would just be like so angry at us kids of African descent because we would tap on our desk and all of a sudden it would become a symphony when five black boys did it. 
And how, like, with our bodies, there were these movements, and stop that. Whereas in Nigeria, it was just like this fluidity. You see, you see the, the little boys and little girls, but in the masquerade, which is the most amazing thing to see, when the masks come out, and they're all different types, and they chase little kids to the village. It's really hilarious. And the little kids know this is all a big game. But the fact that they, they'll dance behind the masquerade and the drummers, and they will imitate the movements of their elders, and there's this moment where they kind of look at each other and go, all right, it's time to improvise. And this New Orleans second line thing starts happening. And they're like five and six and 10 and 11, and they can dance like God before they can walk straight tall as adults. And it's like, that's us. That's us. We were, we were getting our hair braided in the village. We were dancing. We were cooking. We were doing this. We were doing that. And I got to tell you one little funny thing before we stop. I went back with the women, the women who were cooking, and they were cooking these huge cast iron cauldrons, barefoot, three pieces of wood all day long, okra all day long, black eyed peas all day long, rice, all the good stuff. Fried sweet potatoes, all the good stuff. Um, frying little bits of chicken to go in the stew. And so I go back there, we gave them a little bit of money. I gave, gave them a little bit of extra money. And they're like, yeah, you're too much, man. We like you. And so I said to them, I said to the women, I said, you know, I beg, I beg, I know you don't believe, but when America, I cook, cook just like them. I'm a man, but I cook just like them. This one woman, she called my tea up real fast. <laughs> I don't know what she said in Ebo, but it went something like this. Something, 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 Ebo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh. I can't, you know, she called me out real fast. Because I'm up there bragging. I'm a man. I cook like this because of my living history stuff, and I do cook like them. And she's like, mm-hmm, I know why, too. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Try it. And she snapped her fingers too like that. I was like, ooh. <laughs> Ouch. Um, but yeah, I can't wait to go. I'm going into we're going to Ghana. I wish you were coming with us. Uh, we're going on a culinary tour of Ghana in March. So yeah, I, I can't wait to go back. Um, have some more jollof rice. You come back and tell us about it. How about that? I should. The book is for sale tonight uh, at a better price than we sell it at Bird in Hand, but it's also for sale at Bird in Hand. Um, buy the book because it, it will help you understand, no matter who you are, it will help, help you understand. I think the, the passage that Michael read it, it, it was an, is, is kind of indicative of what's in here. It'll help you understand who you are, that, that identity is something that's still evolving, how we understand ourselves, and especially how we understand ourselves through the food that we cook, as Americans. that has been cooked, it's, it's unbelievable. To that end, we're gonna have an amazing supper tonight with uh, a pepper pot that was inspired by a recipe in here. There are recipes in here too, so it's not a cookbook because they are not, would you tell me? Remunerative, but it, uh, yeah. But there are recipes make you that, pour. that helps. And um, so we have pepper pot, um, uh, which is, tell us what pepper pot is. Basically, it comes from Mokoto from West Africa, which is originally like a gut stew, you know, made tasty with a lot of peppers and onions. Um, in America, um, the pepper pot lady literally had the tripe 
whatever was left over, and would make a big pot of this stuff with okra and other good stuff. Sell it on the street with the, the original street food, fast food. And it was always a black woman who did this. Um, <laughs> West Indies pepper pot was also made with crab and okra and callaloo, you know, various leaves, amaranth, and um, cassava leaf sometimes. It depends on what island you were in. Right. That, that got me in trouble with the book, by the way. The defining Kalu, I defined it one island's way, uh-huh. but not three other islands' way. Yeah. And they were just like, uh, nah. And I'm just like, well, wait a minute. You know, there's a lot of islands. <laughs> but, the, but the bottom line is it's, it's just a typical sort of African diaspora stew that has these deep roots in the continent, but also has these connections to the Portuguese, Spanish, and English Creole worlds. Yeah. So we have uh, a vegan pepper pot um, with the addition, your, your, Add or as you please, uh, short rib and uh, smoked pork belly and smoked oysters, which was cool to hear um, how that could play a role. Yeah, I didn't think about that. And uh, millet salad also from the book, uh, some Carolina rice, um, ubiquitous in the book and elsewhere, and then sweet potato pie for dessert. Hope that's okay with you. And um, and not to mention the uh, hibiscus Roselle yes, cocktail. Yes, yes. This is a very it's a very African diaspora name. Oh, I see. What a night! Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thanks again for joining us tonight for our conversation at Artifact Coffee. With special thanks to Dana Slater for producing the program, Hannah Reagan for her masterful coordination, and particular thanks to Donnie Carlo for recording this evening's conversation. We're grateful to be partnering with Heritage Radio in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you to them for creating a home for the Origin Speaker Series. 